you have your copies of God's Word, we're going to continue through the book of Acts. Next week we will concentrate on Christmas, and then we will come back to the book of Acts. We're going to pick up in verses 8 through 15, remembering our context here, the Hellenistic and the Hebrew Jews were in conflict with one another, and uh, so the Hellenistic Jews were being discriminated against, and they elected seven men full of the Holy Spirit, who were all Hellenists, to take care of this issue. And because of their compromise towards one another and their submission to one another, they could keep the, the balanced approach of both an outward focus of the church and sharing the Word of God and an inward focus of the church and taking care of each other's needs. And we need to maintain that balance as well in our church. And with that being said, one of the names is going to carry over to this text and we'll, we'll pick it up in verse... Uh, what? Eight. Here we go. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great and wondrous signs among the people. But some men from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, including uh, a bunch of, uh, Sir, oh, oh boy, Serenians. Did I get that right? Got it. All right. Alexandrians and some from Cilicia and Asia rose up and argued with Stephen. And they were unable to refute or cope with the wisdom and the spirit in which Stephen was speaking. And then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came up to them him and they grabbed him and they dragged him away and brought him before the Sanhedrin council. They put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against the holy place, which is the temple, and against the law of Moses. For we have heard him say of this Nazarene Jesus that he'll destroy the temple and alter its customs that Moses handed down to us, God's chosen people. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council of the Sanhedrin saw his face, the face of Stephen, and it glowed with the face of an angel. Let's ask God's blessing, and we'll walk through this as it has a, a great deal of application for our hearts. Gracious Heavenly Father, all we have is Christ. Father, we pray that your word would be our authority. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. We pray that your Son, Jesus Christ, would be our goal, our passion, and the object of our deepest affections. We pray that our religion would be crushed by the relationship that is Jesus Christ. Father, give me words to speak. Give me discernment. Give me wisdom. But above all else, I really ask, Lord, that what I say is what you meant in this text. So, Father, I pray this and I ask this in your Son's precious name. And if you are awake this morning, say amen. 
All right, here we go. We first met Stephen last week when he was one of the seven men that was chosen to distribute food and bring unity back to the church as there was the, you know, the Hellenistic compromising Jews and the, and the Hebrew Jews who did everything right. And to bring unity back to the church when murmuring, remember they, they complained, they murmured against one another, one of Satan's great tactics to pit believer against believer. And, and discrimination and murmuring began to take root between these two kinds of believers. And if you need that context, it's in last week's sermon. Now it's important to remember that Stephen is a Hellenistic Jew. He was a Hellenistic Jew. So let me just give you a quick reminder of, of what that is, and I'll make this quick. Hellenistic Jews were those who were dispersed during the exile, hence the words diaspora Jew, dispersed Jews. They were refugee Jews that are mentioned in Acts chapter 2, 5 through 12. They spoke the Greek language rather than Hebrew and Aramaic. They were a multicultural group that came, and they lived outside of Israel and would return or resettle back to Israel during important times of festivals like Passover or Pentecost. These Jews used the Septuagint uh, uh, for their scriptures, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. They used the wrong translation. Because of this, Hellenistic Jews were considered second-class citizens within Israel. Pharisees taught that they were repulsive compromisers. So with all this being understood, we're going to be looking at Stephen, this Hellenistic Jew, and we're going to be looking at him for the next three times that we are in the Word of God. We are going to look at today, Stephen the man. Then when we're back together after Christmas, we're going to be doing Stephen the message, and then after that, Stephen the martyr. So with all that being said... I'm going to try to find where I am in my notes. There it is. Let's dive into the text. And Stephen, well, you can see already up there, Stephen's name means a victor's crown. And even though he will be martyred for his faith, he certainly will be a victor's crown. Now, the word full here is, is a word that means to be filled up, to be filled full of the Holy Spirit. It's just not he's full of himself. Although, how many here have ever met someone full of themselves? Can I get a witness at all? Okay, some of you. One, one of you. This guy is laughing. He must be related to... No, I'm, I'm going to move forward, all right? He's full of something, and he is full of the Holy Spirit. It is one of the reasons, if we remember, because we've got to bring the context of last week with us. Every little section of Scripture is not an island unto itself. We have context here. Stephen was one of the Hellenistic Jews of the seven who was chosen to minister in the church and resolve the conflict because he was full of, last week's message, the Holy Spirit. We find that in Acts chapter 6, verse 3. This is not a reference, by the way, of some ecstatic religious experience where all of a sudden a thunderbolt hit him and off he rattled in tongues and, and, and all these miraculous signs. While, I want to make sure that I'm accurate here, Stephen did perform miraculous things, this context here is about being filled with the Holy Spirit. It is, if I could just unpack it, a disciplined, obedient walk under the control of the Holy Spirit that had produced over time obvious fruit of the Spirit. Now remember this word filled in biblical language is used to describe someone who is obedient, 
someone who is under the influence of the Holy Spirit. In fact, Saul right now, who will become Paul, actually unpacks this idea in Ephesians chapter 5 when he says this, So then be careful how you walk, and do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, that is, obedience, following the will of the Lord. And do not get drunk on wine, okay? Which, by the way, is talking about influence. Do not be influenced with other things in which there is debauchery, but be filled, be influenced, be under the control of the Holy Spirit. So here's what I'm getting at. Being filled or under the influence of the Holy Spirit is not an overnight instant thing. Or experience. Now, you could categorize the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are instantaneously indwelled with the Holy Spirit, but filled is a different thing here. Being filled is something that is gained over time by submitting and obeying God. Galatians chapter 5 verse 16 talks about that. It's important to see Stephen's filling in this context in, in view of last week's text, which is seen in Acts chapter 3, uh, chapter 6 verse 3, where it says Stephen was of a good reputation, a good reputation, all right, that, that was full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Notice it was his reputation, something he gained over time in, 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 in submitting to the will of God that revealed that he was full of spirit and wisdom. I just want to stop here and just kind of give a gentle warning as it relates to people within the church and really outside of the church. Be careful of a person who proclaims maturity in Jesus Christ, but has a reputation of causing conflict and division everywhere he or she goes. Be careful of someone who says, I am mature, I am chasing Jesus Christ, but everywhere they go, it's just divisive. Words only have meaning if they are backed up by a reputation of a life-producing fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is very clear. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Our reputation tells us what we are full of. Our words do not. Words are cheap. Reputation is revealing. So we ask ourselves the question here, what is he full of? Because we are all full of something. Well, Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit, and it manifested itself in, in grace and in power. It was godly character that backed up his, his good witness. You see, grace not only saves us. We often talk about, oh, the grace of God that saves us. But when we look at the life of Stephen here, and really any apostle and any true believer of Jesus Christ, that grace not only saves us, but that grace is not dormant. The grace of God changes us. And if we are not being changed, if we are not growing in grace towards one another, are we really going to claim a grace that saves? Because God's grace does not stall. Amen? It pushes us to be go further than where we were. A person who claims to be a Christian but does not exhibit the fruit of the Spirit should keep quiet about being a Christian. And all of God said what? Amen. All of God's people, I should say. 
(laughs) All the pantheistic gods of the universe say amen. No, all of God's people say amen. How many here have ever known someone who claimed to be a Christian or, or even worse, went to your church? Anyone here? And you're like, please, please don't tell anyone you go to Trinity. Anyone at all? Of course, not this Trinity. We're talking Trinity Lutheran. We're talking Trinity. No, I'm just teasing. How many here have ever said, I'd rather they not share their faith? Anyone at all? I've been there. And frankly, I've seen that trappings in my own life. Because your testimony will only bring reproach to the name of Christ if it is not backed up by a good reputation. Now, with that being said, I want you to grab an interesting detail here. And this is where we, it gets a little more exciting here. Because if you're a nerd, I went into the little kid's Sunday school class. What grade do you teach, honey? Is it fourth grade? I went in there and kind of co-taught with Amy briefly. She was the lead teacher, which is completely unbiblical, all right? But I submitted to her. And, and we were teaching the kids, and they all had to write names on stars. And they gave me my name, which was Good Nerd. All right, that was my name in the class, and I was, I was rather, what's the word I'm looking for? Complimented, all right, because nerds rule the world. Young ladies, let me give you something to know. I'm just teasing, all right? Date the nerds, all right, because cool evaporates, amen? <laughs> I was not cool in school, but I'm too cool for school now, all right? This is super cool. This is nerdy, but it's fun. You're just going to change your life, all right? Two men just walked out. Apparently, they are not nerds, all right? Wow, that went fast. Anyone else want to leave? All right. But some of the men from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen. Now, these would have been enslaved Jews who won their independence in 63 BC, um, they, they, they finally free, got free from slavery and they started their own synagogue, including both the Syrians and the Alexandrians and some from Cilicia, I always want to say Sissy, all right, and, and Asia. Now, you might say that doesn't sound interesting at all. You might say that seems really boring and it could not be of a further interest or relevance to our lives. But the Bible we got contains details, which I am very detail-oriented, I can't speak, all right, for a purpose, for a reason. So let's dig these up. Here we go. The Holy Spirit is a very good writer, all right? So let me contemporize this. You have, you have these one or two synagogues filled with all of these people, some of the freedmen, all right, in Cilicia and Asia and Alexandrians. All of these, you know, scholars say there's about one to two synagogues being represented here in the city of Jerusalem. Why is this interesting? Well, let me tell you this. Let me contemporize this, and you tell me why this would seem odd. What if I told you President Obama attacked President Biden? Or, Vice President Pence attacked President Trump. I wasn't going to say Trump-Pence, but very likely he would attack him, all right? But, with that being said, what if I said Obama and Biden got in a, in a, in a, in a visible fight, and Pence, who apparently doesn't get frustrated over anything, gets angry at Trump, which I think we could all understand. I'm not trying to get political here, but I'm speaking truth, all right? What pops out when you hear that? What's that? They're on the same side. 
They're from the same party. They're, they're, they're from the same uh, group of people here. It would seem a little odd that these people would lead the attack on Stephen. You think it would be the Hebrew Jews? You think it would be the Sanhedrin? It, not, not these groups of people here. These are Hellenistic Jews, highlighted in purple. These are Stephen's. Stephen and them, they share an identity with Stephen. They are Dispora Jews, just like Stephen. The only difference was Stephen became a follower of Jesus Christ and the rest of the synagogue did not. They share, however, a very common background with one another. And here's the common background. These Hellenistic synagogues, one or two of them, all right, were constantly treated poorly by the Hebrew Jews within Israel. And in Jerusalem. So they shared a common background of, of being a second class Jew, of being ridiculed and poorly treated. In fact, if we study this out, and I don't have enough time, although maybe afterwards we can get all the nerds together, but here it is it is almost certain that Stephen was a member of one of these synagogues as a Hellenistic Jew. So I want you to grab this. The Hellenistic synagogues in Jerusalem were already very unpopular. So Stephen's own synagogue had a vested interest, grab this, in shutting him up in order to gain standing in a culture that already did not value their presence. Grab that. I'll say that one more time. These Sanhedrin, or these synagogues, had a vested interest in shutting Stephen down to try and gain some standing in a culture that did not value their preference. Do you you begin to smell that nerdy aroma coming up from that that background study? They They wanted to affirm their worth, all right? In this case, Jewish orthodoxy. We're no different than you. We're we're just as righteous. We are just as obedient. We are just just as orthodox as the Hebrew Jews. They wanted to affirm their worth in a culture that disliked them by attacking one of their own. Now that will preach. I don't go on social media too often. I have zero social media footprint. But when I do, (laughs) that reminds me of a commercial, I constantly see Religious people attacking other religious people. Or let me be even more specific. Religious people attacking Christians in order to virtue signal their worth in a culture that already does not value them. My friends, if you stand strong for Christ, you will be sacrificed by the religious community to gain the approval of the world they desperately want to be valued in. My friends, stand for Christ. There is a person who is becoming increasingly popular within our godless religious culture that makes a living by only attacking Bible-believing conservative churches. It is her target Other more politically correct or doctrinally liberal or politically active churches can be rife with wickedness. And not a single word is ever said by this young woman. In fact, she is willfully silent. 
But if a conservative, Bible-believing church is even perceived to be an heir, out come her guns. This makes it obvious what her goal is. And it is less about purity and more about a target. And she uses her target to elevate her value in a culture that does not value doctrinally conservative Christians. It is transparently abhorrent. This is what is going on here. Hey, culture, look at how in line I am with you. Look at, I, I am not all that different from you. I have, I have value in your culture as well. We are destroying one of our own to prove it. See our value? So they did the most routine thing, the most tired and routine of any person whose goal is cultural acceptance. Any person whose goal is cultural acceptance rather than Christ is going to go down this journey that is very tired, it is very old, it is very predictable. We find it in our politics, we find it in our relationships, we find it in our churches, we find it in our DNA. There is nothing new under the sun. What we read here in Acts chapter 6, we live today in 2021. And here it is. It is as old as Cain and Abel, and it is just as predictable. I've had it done to me countless times. Maybe you've had it done to you. It happens in our marriages, our churches, our leaderships, our work, and in really any relationship where a person's goal is not truth, but of power, influence, acceptance, and control. It first starts out with debate. Oh, we want to exchange our ideas and have a a healthy, robust argument. Which, by the way, nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. It says here, they rose up and they argued with Stephen. Now, it's important to understand that this just didn't happen in instant chronological order. All right, this the, The passage we are looking at today and last week didn't happen in a matter of hours or a day. We're looking at a couple weeks that are going by. So they finally engage Stephen because it takes a while to accuse someone of what they're doing. They've got to give him time to do it. And and they accuse him and they start an argument. Really the word here is a, a debate with him. In fact, Paul, who is not, right now his name is Saul, likely would have been one of the ones who debated him. Because in a, in a couple weeks from now, Paul, Saul, can I just call him Paul? Can everyone understand if I say the word Paul, I'm talking about Saul? Are we all good with that? Because Paul Saul sounds like the Waltons a little bit, doesn't it? And Jim Bob, and now I'm at the Duggars. Let's move forward, all right? Paul's going to hold the coat of those who stoned Stephen. So Paul, a student of Gamaliel, is going to be debating Stephen as well. But they begin to debate him as weeks go by. And when their argument does not produce the outcome that they want... Ungodly people whose, whose goal is to be accepted by this culture will turn from debate of different ideas. They will turn to accusations. Their ideas and positions of loss, you can see here, they were unable to cope. There it is. They were unable to cope with the wisdom and the capital S Spirit, pointing to being full of the Agyanumata, the Holy Spirit, in which he was speaking, oh, the fulfillment of Christ's promise. Don't worry what you'll say when you stand before the leadership because of my name, for I will give you what you are to say. We have a lot of fulfillment going on here. If your idea or goal is not accepted, 
If their idea is not accepted, a godly people will simply move to the next stage, which is character assassination. How many here are glad that our politics has never delved into this at all? Amen? If your candidate is demonizing another person, it's likely their argument is not strong. And it certainly doesn't show their character. But I want to get into here. I want to get into here. Character assassination or name-calling. If the world cannot convince the church, the true church of Jesus Christ, of joining their social agenda, which is really the agenda of Satan, who is the prince and power of the air, the father of the, of the unbelieving, if we won't join their agenda, we are simply, our ideas are not only allowed, not allowed on the, on the debate floor, but we are called many different names. If the true church of Jesus Christ does not join hands with the social agenda or direction or humanistic religion of the world, we are just given names. What are some names we are given? Raise your hand. What are are some names we are given if we don't join the culture of the day? Talk to me. Racist. Intolerant. Hate mongers. Bigots. Phobias. Let's just call them names. It is an old, tiresome, and predictable routine. When people turn to character assassination by, or name calling, it's because they no longer have a good argument. When I finally look at the elders at 9.30 at night and say, oh yeah, well you're a, you're a poopy face. I've lost the argument, all right? How do I know this? It's not important how I know this, all right? It's not important. That's not the question. The question is, were they being one? That's the question. I stand by my statement. No. I've lost the argument. So what do you do when your idea cannot win the day and character assassination is underway? What's the best way to implement that? Here it is. Look at this. They secretly induced, there it is, they secretly, I like that word, induced, almost like you induce labor, all right? You're, you're producing a, 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 a response that wasn't naturally going to happen on its own, and they do it secretly by whispering into people's ears. It is an old entire tactic. Frankly, it makes me yawn. It is so transparent. I can't tell you how many times, I'm sure you have as well, people will come with demands, expectations, positions, and if they are not implemented, if they are not agreed on, they simply move to character assassination. I usually just kind of wait. It takes about one to three months for these things to percolate up before I find out what kind of horrible monster I am. Maybe you've been there as well. But it percolates up to the top. It reaches my ears. Should I? Write that down, okay? Um, <laughs> if I open up a little piece of my heart, will you promise not to judge it? All those who promise not to judge it, say amen. Oppose. Say, judgment. This is my flesh side of me. Plug your ears. When someone demands something, 
and it's not best for the body. It might be best for them, but it's not best for the body. And I or the elders have to say no. It's only a matter of time before a name or an accusation comes up. And sometimes you cannot judge this. You have given that right up. I will write on a piece of paper what my prediction is. I will seal that piece of paper. I will look it shut and I will sign it and date it. And I'll just slide it into my, into my box, my desk. That's right. I have an accusation box in my office. No, I don't. I don't. <laughs> and it's full. Sometimes I just get it in there. And then later the accusations will, will come up. Now I want to tell you, I'm, I don't bat a thousand. It's about 9.98, all right? Every once in a while when these, these uh, accusations come up, I'll pull it out and just slide it across the desk to the individual. What's this? This was my prediction three months ago where this would go. And I love it when they open it up because it gives me a sense of godliness, all right? <laughs> it is an old and tired tactic. And I just did that in a judgment-free zone. With this going on, all right, they secretly induce. This is the only time it is ever used in the New Testament. This is the only time you will ever see this. It means to begin to suggest ideas into people's thinking through conversation. To, to, to suggest ideas into people's thinking through conversation. Let me put it this way. To skillfully lead someone to a desired conclusion while giving them the illusion it was their own. Did you follow that? To skillfully lead someone to a desired conclusion while giving the listener the illusion it was their own idea. This is manipulation 101. They coached people unknowingly and knowingly to bear false witness. I have known people who softly and consistently raise topics until someone joins the conversation and then that someone quickly becomes the vehicle to bring forward the other person's agenda. Be alert of that. Now, Now, they usually do this by taking words that you have used or that I have used or that Stephen has used here and and take them and pull them out of context and pull them out of intent. This is what is happening here. Look, he says this. We have heard him speak blasphemous words uh, against Moses and against God. To speak evil in the name of Moses and of God was a sin that was punishable by death. It was a capital offense to do this. Their charges contained small elements of truth passionately taken out of context because if you say something enough times if you just if you say something enough times it becomes what talk to me church true and if you say it passionately well then it must be true so now stephen is in front of the very sanhedrin that executed jesus by the way for some of the very same accusations false ones The same Sanhedrin that flogged the disciples 39 times and counted it a joy to be found worthy of suffering in the name of Christ. 
He's in front of the same Sanhedrin. And they charge him with a sin by exaggerating Stephen's words out of context. So much so that Luke even makes sure that we all know that they, they put forward false witnesses. It's like Luke just saying, let me, let me just cut to the chase here. These men, they've been, they've been lying here. They're lying. Now, before we move forward here, I'm going to test your, and I'm sure that's already up there. Crying out, all right, what is the ninth commandment? There it is. Thou shalt not put forward false witness. This is what they're doing. They are charging Stephen with a sin by outright breaking the law of God. He's, and, and they say this. We have heard him say that, that this Nazarene, the contempt is dripping from their lips. If you are seeking, can I just a little parenthetical note here? If you are seeking to find truth, listen to how people speak. 90% of communication is, is nonverbal. Listen to how they speak. As much as what they are saying, they demean Stephen by calling him, they won't even use his name. They say, this man. And, and they go even further and say, this Nazarene. All right? The contempt here is palpable. John Van Tagren brought up a good point on Wednesday night in our Digging Deeper, and I encourage you to come out as we break this passage apart. This was either John's or, or, or Beth whispered it into his ear, and he took credit for it. I'm not sure which one it is. But he said this, and I appreciate it. He said the Hebrew Jews and the Sanhedrin made a Judaism that was a class system. They didn't like the Spora Jews. They didn't like the, or the Hellenistic Jews. They had contempt for anyone that came from Nazareth. You can see it there. By the way, they didn't like anyone from Galilee either, all right? You start to see the picture here. There is a serious amount of pride. Like, oh, we, we love our people. Except for maybe those that are in Galilee, and especially those in Nazareth, and especially those south of us, and especially those who moved away, and especially those who were dispersed, and especially the Septuagint reading. I'm starting to think you don't like a lot of people. Amen? I mean, how many qualifications of your loving grace is there? Now, with that in mind, Here's where we see the serious misrepresentation and the false witness become more evident. They took a thread of truth and they distorted it on purpose. Jesus will, that Nazarene, will destroy the temple. You see it right there in the blue. Now, to be clear, Jesus did mention the destruction of the temple in Luke chapter 21. So there's that little sliver of truth. Have you ever said, have you ever had someone come up to you and to charge you with something? You go, Though I did say that, however, I said much more than that, and there was context to that. They're stripping it from its context. This is one of the very first, by the way, fake news has always been with man, amen? It's always been around. This isn't a new thing. And they pull it out of context. Now, Jesus did mention the destruction of the temple in Luke 21, but Jesus never claimed he would destroy the temple. He said this to his, to the, to his adversaries, if you destroy this temple, in three days I will rise it up. 
In three days, I will raise it up. So this is not, if, if I could just be straight with you here, if they actually listened to what he said, he would say, even if the things fall down, I will build it back up again. Now, here's where they distort the truth and get their way. The first thing is, Jesus was not talking about the physical temple. Jesus was not talking about the physical temple made out of stone in Jerusalem. He was referring to his own bodily and resurrection. He is the temple of God. He is the tabernacle that dwells with men. And he says, if you destroy me and kill me on a cross, and you destroy this temple, I will rise it up again, whole and complete, three days later. This is a picture of his death and his resurrection. In fact, it says right here, for he was speaking about his body. We find that in John 2, 21 through 22. Now you may say, well, maybe they just misunderstood. We all, we misunderstand scripture a lot. Maybe they, especially since they have this, this ick uh, towards Jesus, they, how'd you like that word? That's pretty powerful, isn't it? This ick towards Jesus. They decided they wanted to mishear him. But even if they misunderstood that he was talking about his own body, Jesus never said he would destroy the temple. He actually said the opposite. He said, if it is destroyed, I will raise it up again. Even if they did not understand the spiritual meaning, that is, it is his body, his physical uh, concrete words are still clear. I'll build it up. You'd think this would be a good thing. you think they would champion Jesus and go, he's promised never to have the temple be destroyed. He's going to build it back up again. We have, we have a Messiah. But no. And they say this. He wants to alter our customs which Moses has handed down to us. This is where the teeth of the complaint gets into it. Now I know this is getting a little like, okay, word studies, background, building stones, eek. What does this have to do? Just bring it with us because it's going to pop the application. Again, this is a misrepresentation. Stephen would have taught very clearly that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Covenant. The fulfillment of its rituals. If I could put it this way, Stephen would have taught that the moral law of God has not changed. But the ceremonial law has been fulfilled and done away with. In short, Jesus is the reality that fulfilled the ritual. Jesus is the reality. Everything that your customs pointed to was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It had fulfilled its purpose. Now this is huge. And here's where the application begins to kind of wiggle. You know, like when you're, you're pulling up that bush and there's just one more root holding it down before you can pull it up. Here, you, you were down to one more hermeneutical root, okay? So stay with me here because this is where we start to see ourselves. They were so entrenched in their positions of scriptures. That they did not bother to see the Old Testament actually predicted these things about Jesus. The Old Testament made it very clear in, about who Jesus would be and what he would do and what he would fulfill. Which, by the way, that's what Jesus did. But here it is. They were not interested in what scripture said. They were interested in what they wanted scriptures to say. Did you follow that? Because every one of us can feel that. They were not interested in what the Scriptures said. They were interested in what they wanted the Scriptures to say. Now with that in mind, we begin to see something here. 
Have we ever dismissed a truth in the Scriptures out of hand? Just dismiss it. Well, the Bible says here that, well, I don't believe that. Because your position is more precious than the precept. How's that for alliteration? Have you ever had a position that was more important and precious than the precept of the Bible? I'm going to read to you an example of an email I got in 2015. It is almost word for word, and I have blurred out the person's name and subject line in order to protect their privacy, all right? So this unnamed person, whose horse is smarter than me, is protected, all right? Now, I first, I just want to say, it was not from this person. But the email that you're about to hear is, is almost word for word. This was about six, seven years ago. It says this. Pastor Brett. I was hoping for a stronger agreement on my position in your last sermon. I understand that there may be a lot of verses that speak into my issue, but I will not listen to them, nor will I entertain anything that is contrary to my position. I pray I do not have to hear another single message about what the Bible has to say about this issue. It is very offensive to me. I want you to grab that. The Bible is offensive to my position. Hmm. I brought this to the elders, and I'll share with you what I shared six or seven years ago. I said this, and I say the same thing today. They know this. I've said this. I will never demand to be your pastor. If I have to demand to be your pastor, I am already not your shepherd. And I will never hold on to this church with white knuckles. You are not mine. You do not belong to me. You belong to the Lord. And I said, if you feel this man's position is of greater value than what the Bible says, then I'm going to be honest with you, I'm not your man. Either God's word is our authority, or we are the authority over God's word, and I don't want to stand next to the latter. And then the Lord gives me a reason to apply this to my own life. Because I had some contempt, biblical righteous indignation for this individual. I'm like, look what the Bible says this. How come they're fighting against what the Bible says? And the, the good Lord goes, you do it too, Brett. And I'm like, oh yeah, where? Never a good argument, all right? <laughs> to, just, to serve the tennis ball back to the Holy Creator because you're getting a thunderbolt back, all right? I met with some dear people the other day that asked me to do something that was against one of my comfortable positions. That I was not completely comfortable with, not because of what the Word of God says, but because of the way I was raised. But because of the way I was raised. Now, I was raised in a good Christian home, but all of us have these trappings. So I went to the plurality of elders here at Trinity, and I sought the safety of their counsel. And they said, do what you want, which helped nothing, all right? No, they were very gracious and helpful. And I listened to their counsel. 
And then I went to the Word of God and I prayed, Lord, tell me what to do. I am uncomfortable. His answer was rather quick and rather clear, and I kind of resented that. How many here kind of bank on a, a delay on an answer from God? Anyone at all? You kind of bake it into your response. Hey, would you like to help kids listen to Bible verses and learn God's Word? Well, let me pray about that. We're buying time, right? And we pray about it, and we kind of want that delay to be there. But God answered rather quickly, and this is what God said ever so clearly in my life. He said, is my word your authority or is your comfort? And I said, I want to believe your word is my authority. And he pressed it into my heart and he said, then minister to these people. They're mine. I love them. People are not a category of comfort. We often disqualify things with the pop psychology of our day. I'm not comfortable with this. Can I use? Pay, pay attention. They need to know that I rule my house and manage it well, all right? Remember that time I took your cell phone away? Can I talk about that, the comfort thing? Okay, one time. <laughs> now that I've gotten permission. As parents, you need to be checking your kids' cell phones. Can I get a witness on that at all? What's that? Who said No. Even if they're in their 20s, Mitch Goviaks, you need to check their phones, all right? <laughs> Parents, in fact, why don't, we're going to have an altar call. You guys lay your cell phones down, <laughs> all right? <laughs> we're a little off subject here. That's okay. And I, I said to my daughter, I, she was on, you know, ChapSnap and Google, all that stuff, Instabook, all the old stuff. And I said, I want to see that. I'm going to go through your phone. And she pulled up that pop psychology that she gets from school. Father? And I'm like, oh boy, this is going to be good. This makes me uncomfortable. Who's laughing over there? Yeah. I, I'm, like, I'm like, this makes you uncomfortable. I said, I don't care if you're comfortable. I could care less if you're comfortable. I am your father. I am not your friend. Can I get a witness there? I'll be your friend when you're out of the house, all right? My job is to get you down this aisle with as little baggage as possible. You're welcome, Corey, all right? That is my only job. I said, I could care less if you're comfortable, sister. And she goes, well, this is making me anxious. And I said, then walk away. I don't care if you're anxious. I'm going through this. Here's my point. The pop psychology, we apply that to our Christian walk. I'm not comfortable When is God's word determined by our comfort? When is the last time you and I experienced growth when comfortable? You think Stephen's comfortable right now being manhandled in front of the Sanhedrin that just got done crucifying Jesus and flogging all of the disciples 39 times for crying out loud? They're about to throw him in a pit. Paul's going to hold his coats and they're going to sling rocks onto his head. When's the last time you experienced any spiritual growth in comfort? When's the last time you lifted weights and go, I didn't feel that at all. That should really help. No. So I said those exact words to the people who were asking me. 
God's word must be my authority, not my comfort. I cannot teach the authority of God's word to this church if I nullify God's word by my comfort. I've said this many times, and I will say it here. And I will say it until the day I am no longer your pastor. Whether that day is long into the future or you want me out sooner than later. I will tell you this till the day I am no longer your pastor. One of the most uncomfortable and frightening things Christian will ever do is make God's word the authority over their positions. But we must or we risk suffocating the truth of God's word with our religious activity. Here's a simple question. Is God's word the authority over your positions or are your positions the authority over God's word? This is what is happening here. My friends, the hardest heart to reach in all the world is not a prostitute. It is not a drug addict. It is not a hardened criminal. But the person who has built their entire lives around religious activities and lifestyles rather than a relationship with Jesus and His Word. So entrenched in the how, we don't even know the why anymore. Is this not what we see here? Now I want to make something clear here that I may have not emphasized last week as much as I should about the Hellenistic Jews and for that I apologize. Just because they were not valued, just because they were viewed as second class Jews in Jerusalem did not mean they weren't zealous or passionate about their faith. They established Hellenistic synagogues in the Mecca, there's an iron, iron, ironic word, in the Mecca of Jerusalem, in the, in the pinnacle of their faith. After all, they've traveled hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles just to fulfill the law of God at Pentecost, Acts 2.5. Or they resettled and started synagogues in Jerusalem. Their zeal for God's law is the reason they are eager to use Stephen to make a point. They are passionate. But this accusation has unspoken teeth to it that is not seen in the text. And it is here we'll wrap it up. You see, to speak about the temple in its potential demise, is very strategic here. Would be seen by the Sanhedrin as a challenge to their leadership. You see, according to their first century theological view, the temple would only be subject to judgment. Grab this. The temple could, of God could only be subject to judgment if the leaders of the nation of Israel were in serious sin. Who is he speaking to? The leadership to suggest a hint of any judgment of the temple is to accuse the leadership of serious sin in their lives. Do you see how compounded the levels and meaning here are being manipulated? They are out of context charge holds here. They're saying not only is he doing these things, but it is an accusation against you, which is why we see the words, they they stirred up the people. You guys are in sin. And the elders got whipped up. And the scribes, the Pharisees got whipped up. And the Sadducees got whipped up. And they came and they read him his rights. No, that word dragged is, they manhandled them. They were full of rage and anger. And they pulled them, they dragged them. He might have gotten a couple accidental elbows on the way there. 
They are full of anger and rage that their orthodoxy is being challenged. Now let me unpack one more fun detail and then we'll call it a day. And while they are full of rage and they are full of, of bitterness, they fix their eyes on, 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 on Stephen, all who were sitting in the council, and they saw that his face was like an angel. Oh, our Heavenly Father has a sense of humor. I hope, you, I hope you almost see it, but not quite see it. How many here have ever looked at those pictures where it's just a bunch of squiggly lines, but if you look at it just right, apparently there's something there? How many here have never seen one of those, have never been able to be successful with one of those pictures? I hope that's, I can't, I, I just stare at it, I can't see it. I hope it's, I hope that this is one of those moments where it's almost there, and then I want it to just come out three-dimensionally. The face of an angel I put in my notes. You could tell this was Tuesday. That's right, folks. Stephen looked exactly like my wife, Amy. Aww. See how wonderful of a person I am? The face of an angel. First, this shows, let me just get to a pragmatic point. It shows the contrast between the Sanhedrin's anger, rage, and bitterness and false witness, ninth commandment, compared to Stephen's countenance that is radiating the holiness and the glory of God. He is not fearful. He is not angry. He's just like, hey, can we get, can we get this going? But it goes further than this. This is the only time we see this language in all of the Word of God, except in Exodus chapter 24. The sons of Israel, in Exodus 24, verse 35, I think it's right out there. Yeah, the sons of Israel saw, who is the Sanhedrin? How could the Sanhedrin be described? They're sons of what? Talk to me, church. Israel. The sons of Israel saw the skin of Moses' face shone with the glory of God. Now hang in there. Do you see it? Do you see that three-dimensional picture coming in? I love the sense of humor and the irony here that our Heavenly Father has. Don't miss this detail. His humor is very interesting and his purpose is clear. They are accusing Stephen of doing what? We find it in verse 11. He is speaking blasphemy and he is speaking words against Moses and of God. And as they are charging Stephen, oh, let this fly here. As they are charging Stephen with speaking against Moses and God, they turn their eyes and God himself answers their false charges by putting his glory on Stephen's face just like he put it on the face of Moses. And this detail, as one of the reasons Luke is writing it, would have exploded in the mind of a first century Torah-believing, Moses-worshipping Jew. If a picture is worth a thousand words, the face of Stephen screams a thousand times, I speak with God and with Moses. Oh, every detail of this book has meaning. May it change our lives. Let me end with this little detail. The Hellenistic synagogues in Jerusalem were made up out of many different Jewish immigrants from various regions of all over the world. One of the regions 
found in verse 9 is Cilicia of Asia. Saul, who will soon become the Apostle Paul, was a Hellenistic Jew. Get ready for this. From Cilicia, Tarsus, a province of Asia Minor. Oh, we live in a small world. Paul and Stephen come from the same circles. Paul is watching one of his own follow Jesus Christ full of grace and full of power. Hold that. In my little brain, my question rises, why didn't God spare Stephen? Stephen is radiating and radiating the very glory of God like Moses. He is full of grace and power, the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit and a reputation that is untouchable. He is speaking the words of God. He is doing miraculous things and, and, and power and authority. His arguments destroy theirs. Why not strike the council dead? And allow Stephen and these other godly men who are still healing from 39 flogs. Why not just let those godly men, oh I say this tongue in cheek, live their best life now. Because God is using Stephen for his glory. In front of Paul, through Stephen's death, Paul will be saved. And that's more important than being right. That's more important than being comfortable. That's more important than our preferred positions. When we allow God's Word to be our authority and not our comfort, though His ways are mysterious, and truth be said, His ways are very hard, His plan never stops moving forward. His word never comes back void. My friends, rest in that God is in control. Amen? Especially when you're not comfortable. Gracious Heavenly Father, dismiss us with your blessing. Father, may we be full of grace full of truth, full of the Holy Spirit, through acts of obedience, living a lives that show your word is our authority, not our religious comfort, so that we might be that light and salt you told us we should be. For your glory alone, that is our prayer. pray this in your son's name. Amen. I love you guys. You are dismissed. Have a great afternoon.